0: Hey there, it's Gary It's Thursday, September 12, 2019. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and uh, we actually do, surprise, surprise, have a few interesting things to get to today. Most notably, SB206 is now in the hands of the California governor, and if Gavin Newsom signs it, and I think there's no reason to think that he won't, Even if the NCAA has asked him not to, it's going to become California law on January 1st, 2023, at which point student athletes at universities in California, including four Pac-12 programs, will be allowed to profit off of their name, image, and likeness, which is obviously at this moment a violation of, of NCAA rules. It would still, to be clear, be a violation of NCAA rules unless the NCAA rules change, but it would be against the law for the universities in California to prevent their student-athletes from doing it by taking away their scholarship, by taking away their eligibility. Norlander, you've been writing uh, about this this week, so I'll let you further explain what does what's happening in California mean, and this is probably an impossible question to answer, but I'll ask it anyway, what does it mean for the future of college athletics?
1: It means the future of college athletics is going to be changing perhaps at a pace uh, quicker than the NCAA would like, and yet at the same time still not fast enough for a non-insignificant portion of the public that has been clamoring for student-athletes to have more ability to make money based off of their talents while they're still in school. The only thing that's preventing this from becoming law at the moment is – California Governor Gavin Newsom signing it, and for some historical perspective, I read Deadspin, a story on Deadspin earlier in the week about this. Apparently, when there has been—this is an 111-0 to combined vote both sides of the aisle between California's State Assembly and its Senate. What's wild is the Senate initially, I think, had five or six nays on it. There was an amendment made to the bill that basically said— If you are going to uh, UCLA and UCLA is an Under Armour school, you can't take money as a student athlete from Nike. Not a perfect bill, but whatever. That's a totally separate side issue. But that amendment was put in, and when it went back to the Senate, it was another sweep vote. Detzman said that since 1979... There has not been an an instance where a governor in California has not signed through a bill. So if this doesn't get signed by Newsom and go into law January 1, 2023, it will be a massive upset. That being said, the NCAA pays plenty on lobbying. And these are critical days here because although we are aware of the letter that was sent to Governor Newsom, and I'll read from some of that in just a bit here. Uh, You got to believe behind the scenes, the NCAA is doing all it can from a lobbying perspective to try and persuade the governor not to do this. But when you have, and I understand California is a very liberal state, I get that. But when you have... uh, representatives and legislators and congresspeople on both sides of the aisle voting unanimously for this. It's a a pretty loud statement on the state of of amateur athletics and where they could be going. California being the biggest one here. I'll also mention that this is according to the New York Times. uh, The state of Washington and Colorado are also looking to implement similar legislation. And just, you know, as a hypothetical parish, if... If Newsom signs this uh, and proves this to, to be shot through in the next couple of days or week or whatever, and California and Washington want to aggressively pursue this, they could also pick the January 1, 2023 timeline. But it might just, not, might just not be those two states. You could easily have, if it caught momentum, and I don't know if it will, but if it did, you could have... 8, 20, 10, 12 states do this. And if you get the big states, if you get a Texas, if you get an Illinois, a New York, a Florida to also do this, populous states with a lot of Division One programs, that's where it becomes a situation that cannot be reversed. And that's why the NCAA sent its letter. Now, the there has been a lot of questions about, okay, well, just because they're doing this doesn't necessarily mean that the NCAA can't, um, you know, prevent these teams from from competing uh, in NCAA championships, and that's exactly what the NCAA has threatened there. Um, But that's not necessarily going to be the case here because what the bill has done, I'm going to read directly from the bill, GP, and then I'll let you respond here because I, I could go for 15 minutes on this, but I want to uh, I want to break up this podcast with us kind of all going back and forth. Here are three important clauses from the actual bill. This is the language of the bill. An athletic association, conference, or other group or organization with authority over intercollegiate athletics, including but not limited to the National Collegiate Athletic Association, shall not prevent a student of a post-secondary educational institution participating in intercollegiate athletics from earning compensation as a result of the use of a student's name, image, or likeness. Another clause. An athletic association, conference, or other group or organization with authority over intercollegiate athletics, including but not limited to the NCAA, shall not prevent a post-secondary educational institution from participating in intercollegiate athletics as a result of the compensation of a student athlete for use of the student's image, name, or likeness. Important one there participating. Last one. A post-secondary, yada, 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 including the NCAA, shall not prevent a California student participating in intercollegiate athletics from obtaining professional representation in relation to contracts or legal matters, including but not limited to the representation provided by athlete agents or legal representation provided by attorneys, which expands even further upon the rules that the NCAA put in regarding agents that we talked about a a couple months back on the podcast there. So this is not just saying if you go to school and in the state of California, you are entitled to make money for selling your autograph or having your jersey in the, in the school bookstore. This is saying you have a constitutional right and you will be protected by California law that if the NCAA tries to prohibit you from competition, you have legal recourse, which would bring about antitrust, lawsuits. And yes, I do think there is a real scenario where we would have things go to court over this. And I think the NCAA, with its billions, is prepared to do so. But I think the urgency of its memo to California Governor Gavin Gavin Newsom also spoke to how legitimate of a threat this is to the amateurism model, which you and I both agree needs some major uphauling. So this is not just a situation where California is implementing a rule and then it's like, okay, why'd they do this? The NCAA just can say you're ineligible. No, there will be legal recourse if the players and or the universities choose to do so. That is why it's so important and it's why it's caught the attention of other legislators around the country.
0: That's, um, I think, a key point that some people have missed. I saw some folks earlier in the week sort of say, listen, it's never been illegal for a student athlete to profit off his or her name, image, or likeness. It's just against NCAA rules, similar to, say, um, marijuana in the state of California. It's legal for a student athlete to go buy and possess and use marijuana in the state of California, but it's against NCAA rules. If you test positive for it, there is a, a price to pay. And this is no different than that, except it is undeniably way different than that. Because as you point out, and I'll try to put it in, in simple terms, um, right now, if the, you know, if. Let's say a student athlete legally purchases marijuana in California, legally uses uh, marijuana in California, uh, but then tests positive during the NCAA tournament. That person would be ruled ineligible for for the NCAA tournament, would face a, a serious uh, suspension. Well, that person doesn't have any legal recourse um, to, to, to uh, right. you know. To, to, to go back at UCLA if it were a UCLA student-athlete or go back at the NCAA because there's not a law in California that says schools are not allowed to punish you for testing positive for this particular NCAA-banned substance. But as soon as this law goes into place, January 1st, 2023, it doesn't mean necessarily that the NCAA rules are changed, but it means that UCLA would be... Um, In violation of California law, if they try to prevent you from doing what it is the state now says you're allowed to do, regardless of whether it's against NCAA rules or not. In other words, right now, if a point guard went to UCLA... And signed a hundred fifty thousand dollar deal with Under Armour to be in commercials or billboards, or signed a twenty thousand dollar deal if you're the eighth guy on the team to do a a billboard for a local car lot. Does not matter. Um, you, if it happened right now, UCLA would would rule that player ineligible and remove him or her from from the team. Well, if it happens on January first, two thousand twenty three, regardless of whether it's against the rules or not that the NCAA has in place, UCLA cannot prevent this. They cannot take the person's scholarship. They cannot take the person's eligibility. And so where it can get really complex, and I think a lot of this stuff is going to be worked out in advance, but the NCAA has made it clear. Though they have formed a committee to look at student-athletes' ability to profit off of name, image, and likeness, it seems pretty clear that they're not willing or they don't want to go as far as this California law has already gone. Because this California law puts no limits on anything. The NCAA has made it clear we're open to the idea of somebody profiting off name, image, and likeness, but we do not want it to be a pay-for-play situation. We do not want it to be a recruiting tool, as I've talked about previously. I don't have any idea how you can make it where it is not a recruiting tool. If a young man knows mm-hmm. if he goes to Kentucky or Duke, he's going to get a Nike deal that won't be available to him. If he doesn't go to Kentucky or Duke, it is a recruiting tool. And I don't know how the NCAA is going to going to thread that needle, but whatever. Good luck. My point is this. If we get to January first, two 2023, there could, at least in theory, be a scenario where something like this plays out, yeah. I mean, it we will get. You, here's the point I'm making. Okay. UCLA takes an endorsement deal with somebody. Yes, he, he is. Um, he, he takes it. NCAA comes in and says, "You're not allowed to do that. You are ruled ineligible." UCLA says, "We can't take his eligibility away." They say, "If you don't." you won't be allowed to play in the NCAA tournament. UCLA says we cannot violate California state law. We can't take this man's, young man's eligibility. Where? So then, like, we're in a stare down. Is the NCAA really going to say, under this hypothetical, UCLA can't compete for basketball championships and USC can't compete for football championships and Long Beach State can't compete for College World Series championships? That is what they're threatening. But whether or not they'd really do it and face whatever not only backlash but lawsuits would come along with that is a, is a fascinating proposition.
1: It is, and while the NCAA has continued to have its model stand up to a certain degree in court and court battle- battles, there, is, there has been precedent that has been set in recent years that has led to this. You know, the O'Bannon case that was famous, that wrapped up uh, some years back, That's the O'Bannon case is why people that clamor for their NCAA college football game, it's not there anymore because that case, when it was ruled, said if you're going to have something like that, the players will be paid for it. Well, now there's just not... That's not even on the table anymore. Something like this could potentially, eventually, you have to get it nationwide, open the door for it again. By the time we get to 2023, Parish, that's a long way away. I, I want to note this. Also, the timeline's important. If, if California wanted to make this active January 1st, 2020, it could, but it's being pragmatic and big picture about this. California, all by the way, a state that represents what, like 11, 12% of the entire nation's population, it's damn interesting that the biggest and... One of the most, if not the most important states in our nation was the one that decided to, to take this on. And Nancy Skinner, the representative who learned about uh, this issue uh, some years back before even becoming a state representative, was the one who pushed this through. They are putting the 2023 timeline out there explicitly so that the NCAA can get its act together, amend its rulebook, change its ph- philosophy on amateurism. And by the time we get there, Parrish, uh, I definitely think by 2023, you will have an environment in which college athletes can make money off of their name, image, and likeness. The question is how the sides meet before then, what regulations, what caps they put on it. I do think we will have that. I don't think what California is proposing here is going to be the reality we see in 2023, but I do think you'll have more states. I'll also note that uh, representative in my own state, Chris Murphy, and a representative out of North Carolina are also at the federal level, and who's to say how long this will or won't take or if it even passes, but at the federal level, that would even supersede what California is doing here, they are trying to en- enable um, and empower student-athletes to make money while they are in college as, as athletes. So there is so much momentum behind this, which is why I thought what the NCAA wrote was so interesting and in part, Tone deaf and obviously um, a bit funny. GP, I'll just read a, a passage out of here because, I mean, some of this stuff. First of all, it doesn't even acknowledge the timeline. Okay, it does. The the letter that it wrote to Newsom completely disregards the amount of room and space that California is allowing for the NWA to adjust. And the NWA throws in, hey, we've got a working group coming out in October that's trying to figure out all this. But by the way, it's not. It's not. It's not pay-to-pay strictly. We're against that. Well, California says otherwise, and that's why I think we've got an interesting standoff. But here's what the NCAA letter says signed by its voter governors, which includes mark Emmert amongst uh, 20 other people california senate bill 206 would upend that balance if the bill becomes law and california's 58 ncaa schools are compelled to allow an unrestricted name image and likeness scheme it would erase the critical distinction between college and professional athletics and because it gives those schools an unfair recruiting advantage would result in them being eventually unable to compete in ncaa competitions that's the big threat again that very threat would be subject to serious litigation an antitrust lawsuit. So the NCAA can say this, but it doesn't mean that the NCAA would necessarily win down the road in court. The NCAA would also be banking on its convoy of lawyers and deep pockets to win out in court. Remains to be seen if you had state precedence over this, whether that would actually be the case. I think the temperature on this has been changing and going, and the winds have been blowing the opposite way as the NCAA would want them to, GP. Then a couple more lines here. These outcomes are untenable, I agree, uh, and would negatively impact more than 24,000 California student athletes across three divisions. Right now, nearly half a million students in all 50 states compete under the same rules. This bill would remove that essential element of fairness and equal treatment that forms the bedrock of college sports. Hello, 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 no. The the NCAA, we love it. We love our college hoops. We love our college football. College football and college basketball are already the most unbalanced of any major American team sport you look at the NFL all the professional leagues essentially those have much more parity year-over-year balance and regulatory rules that keep team a from team z from spreading out too far There is already a gulf between not not to mention college football think about college basketball when you've got Howard and McNeese State versus Duke and North Carolina that I found that line to be a joke
0: Every word of the entire statement is nonsensical bullshit. It's like, we don't want college athletics to be like professional sports. Well, really? you Because here's the truth. The only place you don't want college athletics to be like professional sports is when it comes to what the, the the players are allowed to accept. You don't mind playing in professional sports stadiums, arenas. You don't mind getting television contracts like a professional sports league would. You don't mind paying your coaches in 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 excess of what most professional coaches get do you realize the average high major uh college basketball coach makes more than the average NBA coach yeah if you want if you want to make four million dollars a year you're better off trying to coach in the SEC than you are the NBA you're better off trying to coach in the ACC than the NBA if you want to make nine million dollars a year as a football coach you're better off going and, and trying to coach in the SEC than you are trying to coach in, in the NFL. So you don't mind taking television contracts that look like professional sports or paying your coaches in a way that looks like professional sports or selling tickets in a way that looks like professional sports. So you don't really mind college athletics being like professional sports. You just don't want the players to benefit the way professional athletes benefit. There's one line in the statement they say, we are going to continue to Uh, Let me get it exactly right. NCAA continues to focus on the best interest of all student athletes nationwide. This is a statement within a argument against uh, California's SB206. You tell me, I'd love to get these people in a a face-to-face and say, go ahead and make the argument how student athletes not being allowed to profit off their name, image, and likeness isn't in their best interest. How is it not in the best interest of a student-athlete to be able to profit off name, image, and likeness? Why is it in their best interest for you to be able to profit off of it, but them not to be able to profit off of it? It's in, insane. And to your point about if we allowed California to do this and other states can't do it, it creates an imbalance that, that tears at the core of college athletics get out of my face there is no balance in college athletics you you, you, you you they insist that um, California student athletes being allowed to profit off name image and likeness while Wisconsin student athletes aren't allowed to would create a recruiting advantage um, for California universities because they would uh, be able to offer more than other universities in other states could i agree but you know uh, flying flying charter as opposed to a school that has to uh, fly commercial. Like, that, that's an imbalance. Certainly that can be a recruiting tool. Playing in a beautiful 18,000-seat arena as opposed to uh, a little mid-major gym is a recruiting advantage. Uh, having a $25 million practice facility as opposed to having to share a gym with the volleyball team is an imbalance that creates yep. a recruiting advantage. Being able to play – um, every Saturday and Sunday on CBS as opposed to a lesser platform. Like, you know, hey, this, this, this league plays on CBS and ESPN. This league plays on ESPN Plus streaming only. That's an imbalance that creates a recruiting advantage. So why draw the line here to act like allowing this to happen would create some sort of imbalance that would – tear apart college athletics is nonsense the, there's nothing balanced about college athletics as i have said a million times you open this up exactly the way the state of california wants to open it up um yes the um it would be used as a recruiting tool and certain universities with corporate backing and booster backing would have advantages over others but trust me when i tell you the recruiting rankings wouldn't look much different than they look Right now, if we snap our fingers and put this into place today and then 10 years from now looked at the past 10 uh, uh, team rankings at 24-7 sports, guess where the best players would be going? Kentucky, Duke, and schools like Kentucky and Duke. In football, guess where they'd be going? Alabama, Ohio State, Texas, and schools like Alabama, Ohio State, and Texas. It wouldn't change the order of stuff much at all. It would merely allow the people who deserve fair market value to accept fair market value.
1: Yeah, and it's not as though what California's bill allows for is a perfect system. It's not. There will be probably some very interesting stories, some potentially some unintended consequences, but the overall big-picture outcome of this is a fairer environment for student-athletes. They have, They should have an inalienable right to be able to profit and make money off of who they are what they can do, and how they look when they are in college. It's not allowed right now. California wants to make that happen. Credit to Nancy Skinner for being the one that really spearheaded this. She sent out a statement to USA Today on Wednesday after the NCAA put out its statement. She said numerous—because the NCAA is basically arguing that this is unconstitutional, which is um, an underhanded— Allusion to the fact that if this actually goes through, like, we'll see you in court. She said, numerous legal scholars assert that SB 206 is constitutional and that an NCAA ban of California colleges from championship competition is a clear violation of federal antitrust law. The NCAA has repeatedly lost their antitrust cases in courts. As a result, threats of their primary weapon. She's not entirely wrong here. Parrish, I ask you, if this actually comes nose-to-nose here, and the NCAA is actually forced with a scenario in which it has to decide between banning Stanford, UCLA, and USC from the NCAA tournament and Stanford's volleyball team. Like You've got all the other really good Pac-12 schools in uh, less prominent sports, but still within the confines of their university and conferences like Stanford volleyball is a powerhouse. Question is this parish, do you think the NCAA would actually go through with its threats and and essentially blacklist and attempt to boycott these schools or do you think that it would it would be the one that would that would basically balk?
0: I think they would blink at the end, but I'm too. not a, I'm not certain of that. I mean the NCAA has made um you know legislative decisions that make no sense to me for decades now and so listen the only thing there is nothing that they care about more than the concept of amateurism because it is what allows them to make and control all of the money we're talking about billions of dollars if you ever let go of that yes you'll still be a money making entity but I mean, it, just think of it as a big pie. You Right now, the NCAA and the universities under the NCAA umbrella, they control all of the money. They control the entire pie. Suddenly, they would not be in control of the entire pie. Uh, this isn't just about preventing student athletes from profiting off name, image, or likeness or getting fair market value. The whole concept here is we want to control all of the money. Not necessarily we want to have all of the money. We want to be in control of all of the money. And if you end up adopting this California law as NCAA legislation, which I don't think there any scenario where they do that willingly. Mm-hmm. They might be forced into it in the courts. Right. But they're not going to just say, okay, California, we're all on board with the plan you devised. Um, if they were to adopt that, it, it would – but again, if they were to adopt it, it would create a scenario where you know, some of the corporate money that is donated to athletic departments would go straight to endorsement deals for student-athletes. Right now, uh, th- th- again, let's just make this as simple as possible. There's a car lot in Tuscaloosa that donates X amount of dollars per year to the University of Al- Alabama Athletic Department. Some of that money under the... Uh, scenario where California law exists nationwide that that car lot would 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 donate less to the athletic department because some of that money would be going directly to student athletes um, for endorsement deals or just like to ensure that they enroll in school or or stay in school so suddenly the universities would would control uh, a, a smaller percentage of the money they don't want that the NCAA doesn't want that so I I guess if they felt like their options are adopt California law or ban Stanford from competing for a volleyball championship and obviously on a bigger level, USC football, UCLA basketball, I I, I wouldn't put it I wouldn't put it past them. I mean it, it's crazy to think about. I mean it's it's hard to imagine, but if their options are simply we give up our concept of amateurism adopt California law for the rest of the country to make whatever playing field we can the same for everybody if the option's that or ban UCLA and USC and Stanford I I guess I could see them doing it certainly I could see them trying it
1: yeah but you know what there's a long time now between long time between now and January 1 2023 and if other states legislators see and see the public backing behind this. And it's not unanimous, by the way. There are plenty of people that still believe that a student athlete going, getting a scholarship and being afforded what they're afforded is a a fair exchange. I will not discount the people that have those opinions because there are plenty of people in the greater uh, sports following public that do hold that opinion. But it is undeniable that the general public opinion has drifted in favor of player empowerment over this heavily in the past half decade, but really even over the past decade or so. If state legislators see the reaction to this bill and politicians who like to be reelected see how this is an issue that the public sides greatly on, how does this not have a domino effect? And yeah, if it's one state, that's fine. But let's even go conservative here and say it's five states in five different spart- parts of the country Parish, Then you're looking at the NCAA really Really, are they going to blacklist all you know as many as from a from a from a Division One, Two, II, and Three prospect? You're looking at a minimum of 100 institutions, right? In a, in a five-state hypothetical scenario, I can't see that happening. I do think we are going to have compromise. Probably isn't the right word because, frankly, the California bill doesn't allow for much compromise from the NCAA right. side. But I just find it inevitable when you're the NCAA and you've operated like this for 110 years it was inevitable that you would get eventually a harsh backlash reaction, however you want to define it, in the form of what we see in California. And I still think we could see some more. And I still think it's possible at the federal level. Things are going to be changing as they very much deserve to be changing. The things we wait on now are the California governor signing this, or if he just opts to never sign it, I guess it's apparently you have 30 days, and if he doesn't sign it, it automatically just... It kicks in. It's, good. it's it's going to be good. So when that happens and what the NCAA puts forth, and we'll podcast on this when we see it, whenever it happens in October, if we come to learn about it soon thereafter, whatever their current working group decides is tenable, because remember, the Rice Commission Parish did suggest that this issue be examined. It didn't explicitly say students deserve to make money off their NIL, but it did suggest that the NCAA seriously look into a situation that it would allow it to happen. So we wait and see what the NCAA's response from a formal committee uh, suggestion happens, uh, how that comes to be, and that will be in October.
0: Just a couple more things, and then we'll move on. Um, I don't think it's... As big of a deal, I mean, listen, all of this is a big deal. I think a bigger deal than than some people who even work in our industry are, are willing to acknowledge. But, like you mentioned, like, what if it's four or five states? Like, if it's four or five states and one of them is Montana, whatever. If it's four or five states and one of them is North Carolina, you really going to ban Duke and North Carolina from the incident tournament? All right. There's that's no I mean, shot to, that, yeah, that's, to not, me,
1: that's where it gets interesting. That's not happening.
0: I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Because. North Carolina, correct me if I'm wrong, it is one of the states looking at this, correct?
1: Well, no. So North Carolina's one of its senators is one of the two senators teamed up with the senator from my state, Connecticut, who's looking to do this at the federal. So yes, your answer. the answer is yes, but it's different from what California's done. It's looking to have this empowerment at the federal level, so it becomes something that is granted across all states, and it's not just particularly what California is doing. So yes, but just different from California.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, but but my larger point remains true. Like right now it's just California and the NCAA is actually threatening the state of California. Like Gavin Newsom, if you do this, there is a scenario where starting in 2023 UCLA is not going to play in the NCAA tournament. USC isn't going to compete for championships. And I don't know if they'll follow through with that threat as we previously discussed. Wouldn't shock me if they tried to, but I'm not certain they could blink at the end, but what happens if it's not just California? What happens if it's also, again, just for the sake of the conversation, what if it's Alabama too? You know, you, you, Alabama and Auburn can't, can't play for college football championships? I'd like, you get into a scenario, at least in theory, that really, I, I think, puts the NCAA in a position where they have to buckle because it's one thing to try to ban California universities from NCAA championships, it's another thing to ban California universities plus other states with significant. Um, historically strong, big, uh, big brands from competing in whatever sports they might compete. And so, like you pointed out multiple times, there's a long, uh, it's a long time between now and January 1st, 2023. But I do think one way or another, um, the landscape of college athletics is going to change by January 4th, 1st, 2023. Uh, the state of California is is going to ensure that one way or another. And I love Nancy Skinner's approach. You know, before they voted on this, um, the NCAA had had encouraged her and and the other people who work with her. Like, hey, we're looking at this. You know, can you will you just give us time to to come up with a plan before you guys shove our plan your plan in our face and her reaction was you had time. We've waited long enough for you to do something. We're, we, you know now we're working on our timetable and I, I I completely respect that and I do think it could when we look back several years later it could be the thing that brings about actual change in college athletics. You and I screaming about it for years doesn't matter much to the people in Indianapolis. Jay Billis going on TV and being an incredible. Uh, advocate for student-athletes' rights and pointing out time and time again how nonsensical and unfair these NCAA uh, rules are, like, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter to the people in Indianapolis, but it doesn't bring about real change. What brings around, the only thing that is, not the only thing, but the thing most likely to bring about real change in Indianapolis has always been lawmakers, and for these lawmakers in California to, t- to, to essentially say to the NCAA, unanimously, it's time to change. We've waited on you. You haven't shown any indication you're willing to do it on your own in any way that is meaningful. So now, here we go. You're working on our timetable now. Nothing but respect for those people. And the last thing I would say is that um, – you know, Doug Gottlieb, our, our former colleague at CBS, has uh, is one of the people who has tried to minimize, um, you know, the, the impact that this could have. His point is, and I, I agree with part of it. I totally disagree with the other part of it. His point is that college athletics is built around the university brands. Like, like people in Indiana um, don't care so much about Romeo Langford, although obviously they do. But like, you could put Romeo Langford in an Indiana uniform put literally anybody else in the Indiana uniform. People are going to go to Assembly Hall to watch Indiana. People are going to turn on their TVs to watch Indiana. People are going to donate money to the University of – people are going to donate money to Indiana. Um, It's about the the, the brand. That's fine,
1: Parrish, and I'll let you finish your thought. That's fine. That's not – that's not, not true. It still doesn't mean that whoever you put in the uniforms doesn't deserve the right to make money I, <laughs> like well, this is the very basis. It uh, if the market decides that the second blessed player at Indiana literally can't get more than fifteen cents for an autograph, that's fine. That's the very point of what we're talking about here. Continue. No, I yeah, no, I agree
0: completely. That's my point. I agree with him that you as a student athlete or just as a human that you you inherit more um you you suddenly have more worth more value um as a as a thing once you enroll in indiana than you ever would have had otherwise that's undeniably true but it is also the point like once you become that thing you have value attached just like once you become a gold medalist you you become worth something to to people if you happen to be a gold medalist in a particular sport. So I think Doug's got it both right and wrong. Um, it's true that your average basketball player, if he goes to Duke, um, is is worth something that he wouldn't be worth if he went to the G League. Like, I got you. But the point remains the same. Once he's at Duke, he is worth something. And the other point that, that Doug makes, which I think is completely wrong – is he says that, yeah, like people like Zion would make tons of money here. But the the, the number of people who would actually make money from name, image, and likeness is very small. And I actually think it's very large because Zion would make the national money, the international money. People like Zion, Johnny Manziel once upon a time. But again, this would trickle down to the local level. It wouldn't just be... Um, the the first team All American at Kentucky making money off name, image, and likeness. It would literally be, um, the fourth leading scorer at Wisconsin making money doing commercials for a pizza joint in 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 Madison. Like uh, yeah. once you acknowledge that this trickles down to the local level, I really do think, like, an incredibly high percentage of men's basketball players at power conference universities would, would make not insignificant money off of name, image, and likeness, because even if a local owner of some company doesn't think there's real value to putting, uh, you know, the, the third guy off the bench in a commercial, that guy, if he is also a hardcore basketball fan, who is a big time booster, he might just say, this is my way to help my university um, be something otherwise than it would have been as a basketball program. If I can ensure that every, if I can help be one of the people who helps make it clear to prospective student athletes, if you come to Wisconsin, you will be taken care of in some form. Then, then, then that's what I'm willing to do. And so I think where Doug has a, a blind spot here is it wouldn't just be about the people who actually can help Nike sell shoes or Under Armour sell shoes. It it would become a way for boosters who are also um, owners of companies to help enhance the programs that they care so deeply about, and they would throw money at it regardless of whether it showed a real return or not.
1: Yeah, and the SLA has... I don't. I don't necessarily disagree. That, but that, that is
0: exactly what the NCAA is trying to. Avoid. Yeah, they are trying
1: to avoid that. I, but I, again, it goes. I
0: don't understand how you can avoid that. Uh,
1: and, and it's it's money one way or the other because it goes back to what you talked about with the imbalance when it comes to the recruiting wars with facilities. Like boosters are are providing money for that, and it is it is simply a different way of creating an imbalance financially uh, from one school versus the other. Um, <laughs> yeah, I. I there i'm not saying that this will be a i'm i'm not saying that what california is putting forth is going to be the best possible outcome it will have its flaws it will create issues on a previous podcast last week i think that some of the issues could be incredibly entertaining uh if not uh if not imperfect but i do think it's an upgrade from what uh from what we currently have
0: all right do we have anything else to say about this
1: let's let's move on we're gonna you know we went 20 minutes longer than I thought we would, but it was a worthwhile discussion. Hope the listeners thought that. No, but we will obviously get back to this um, as news merits. But I would think at the very least at the end of October, because we're going to know more in terms of what the NCAA has planned to try and counter this. So, uh, you know, we'll hit it on a future podcast. But let's uh, let's move on.
0: Former Arizona assistant coach Book Richardson back in the news this week. We'll get into that next. But uh, first, check check this out. So Yahoo Sports uh, had a story that published yesterday focused on a transcript of an FBI recording between two undercover agents. And I believe it was two undercover agents. It might have been.
1: It was. A- it was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just just briefly here, G. P. Because if you if you weren't in the courtroom, I, I, like what that what was here was part of a conversation where other video and wiretaps were played in court, but this part of it actually wasn't. So the, like this wasn't some separate meeting that the actual environment of this meeting had previously uh, been disclosed in court. It was this exact part of the conversation that we did not previously yeah. know. Yeah.
0: It, it doesn't matter whether it was two undercover agents or seven undercover right. agents. But my point is, like, if it if I say two and it was really three or one <laughs> like there's gonna be an arizona stan uh, arizona fan out there like uh, tweet me like paris you, you you said it was two and it was really one was fake news and so like just i wanted to make I sure gotcha. was, like, you I, I say gotcha. it was two I, i'll go with two i got gotcha. so there's a transcript of a conversation between book richardson and undercover agents um it was recorded uh the conversation in june 2017 and he is explaining to these undercover agents how he paid $40,000 to a high school coach to help ensure the academic eligibility of former Arizona standout Raleigh Hawkins. He also, and this had been, uh, I, I this other part, I, I I don't know if it had been reported before. I'd certainly heard it before. It had been somewhere that he had paid the cousin of Raleigh Hawkins, who is not Larnell. far as I know, shouts to Larnell. This is Rodney. But- um, he had paid the uh, cousin, the Rodney, if you say, uh, of Raleigh Hawkins $2,000 a month. The cousin had moved to uh, Tucson. Uh, I retweeted it yesterday. Immediately had Arizona fans tell me it doesn't mean anything. Norlander, if you had an Arizona fan tell you this doesn't mean anything, what would you say?
1: I'm just going to throw it all on me, aren't you? Um, <laughs> I'm going to let them come at you for a minute. No, I. So this, this story comes about because... Here's the exact graph from from Yahoo, from forty Dan Wetzel, uh, Pat Forty, and Pete Thamel. Public record from the trial. First of all, they say, in a transcript of a conversation recorded by the FBI in June 2017, but not previously published in the media. Uh, former Arizona assistant basketball coach Emmanuel Book Richardson told undercover agency paid 40000 to a high school coach to help ensure the academic eligibility of former Wildcats player Raleigh Alkins. Next graph, public record from the trial of former agent employee Kristen Dawkins and Adidas consultant Mercode this spring includes the transcript of the previously unreported conversation. So there is apparently public record out here. Um, the steps that led to Yahoo getting this, I don't know. Here's what I would say to this. It's it's an interesting story uh, Brian Snow who works for 247 sports tweeted that he did a, a little bit of digging after the story went live and said the running rate for something like what is described in this Yahoo story much closer to two to five thousand dollars these days than forty thousand the forty thousand seems insane. we have to allow for the possibility that like other instances in this case book Richardson was, Either inflating price, talking up a situation, didn't follow through on it. Parrish, what I am, what I am more likely to believe than not in this situation is if this actually happened, it would have been brought up at the trial because what you have here is not just potential academic fraud, GP, but you also have the exact situation, not the exact, but the the scenario in which Louisville got entangled in this, where. If you had Alkins go to Arizona, not just uh, in any kind of payment scheme, but also spe- specifically if his transcript was altered to make him eligible, why? if this could have been corroborated, why would it, it had not been part of the charges, been part of the trial, because it would have made Arizona a, quote, victim the same way that Louisville and NC State and Kansas were victims. So I am led to believe that we have book on tape talking about this. Not to say that it didn't happen, but my – GP, when I read the story and the timing of it, my first instinct was to say, okay, clearly the federal government was not able to corroborate this because if it could, this would have been uh, a more prominent part of the trial, and it just simply wasn't. That, so that was my takeaway.
0: Right, um, and I, I can't argue with that. Perhaps perhaps it's all right. Obviously, when it comes to an NCAA case, um, it's not the same as a, as a federal trial, as a federal case, and so the standards – proof are are slightly if not drastically different I guess what I'd ask you next is um, what if anything do you think the NCAA does with this because what we do have undeniably you could say it was exaggerating You can say that he was making it up, although I can't think of a a single believable reason why he would just be making these things up. I, I know that Arizona fans got their reasons, but that's why I qualify it with believable reasons. I can't think of a single believable reason Book would just be making up a story about helping get Raleigh Hawkins eligible in violation of NCAA rules and taking care of Raleigh Hawkins' cousin in violation of NCAA rules. If you want to say he exaggerated the numbers, whatever but the idea that he just made it up not believable to me Mm -hmm. um what do you think the display does with it because what we have is a former assistant right hand man to the head coach um admitting on tape um level one violations through the roof
1: yeah um not not good at all um I don't know if the NCAA was aware of this or wasn't, uh, Arizona hasn't disclosed any of this. Obviously the NCAA doesn't comment on investigations as they are ongoing, but there's just simply too much here. And yeah, to me, something like this, if I worked for the NCAA and I had, and I looked at just specifically the Arizona case and all that's gone on with, with Aiton and Miller and book and, and, and everything you've, you had even, um, um, uh, um, Phelps, the assistant, and and the issues that were tied to him, uh with Sharif O'Neill, I believe. Um, there's just a lot here. Uh, to me, the academic misconduct fraud, however you want to label it, uh, is the worst of it all because you can't have situations in which, and even though they happen, you know, the the mere if you're gonna tie, you know, academics and athletics and get into this whole issue of who should be getting into what schools when you have falsified transcripts to me that gets at the root of a ton of corruption to me that's m- way more problematic than if you got a guy saying I'll give you 30 grand to go play for the school um, because then you're dealing with clearinghouse issues you're dealing with the university even accepting these kids to begin with you're falsifying documents I mean that's serious stuff there they they're gonna have to prove it obviously but I do think it's, I do think that it is completely um, practical to think that Book Richardson, who previously was a grassroots coach in the New York City area, um, could have been working a way to get Raleigh Alkins eligible at Arizona because he needed one thing falsified on a transcript, had a coach from New York City falsify that transcript to get him into Arizona. I'm not saying that it definitely happened. I'm saying that I could see it happening Obviously, there have been long been discussions and rumors about how certain schools get certain players into the university. I think that's a big issue here. And yes, this could be another thing that potentially gets tacked on to Arizona and could be considered as bad as anything else if it can be proven at the NCAA level. I think it is a... More than problematic. I mean, I I think it's really concerning. Again, though, I don't know how much the NCAA has investigated this particular thing. I will include the fact that Book Richardson has said that. I mean, he told me before he got sentenced uh, the amount of investigation that he went through from the NCAA side of things, let alone the federal side. uh, Huge. And um, I don't have this in front of me. I believe this is accurate. Uh, This is you know a podcast for the record. I was going to say don't quote me, but it will be on the record. I'm. I want to say that Richardson's lawyer has said that he will cooperate with the NCAA with any kind of investigation. Uh, I might be conflating him with someone else that was caught up in this, but I believe that is the case there. So we we could well come to find out more about this parish after Richardson gets out of prison, by the way. He's sitting in a federal uh, facility about an hour and 45 minutes west of where I sit right now. He's in, he's in New York state and is due to get out in when July, August, in, in October, actually probably at about what five, six weeks from now. So it's just the latest thing. And to me, it's a reminder of even if parish, even if this can't be corroborated, proven by the NCAA, there is just so much there with Arizona. There's just, I don't know. A lot of schools have interesting potential outcomes, but you talk to coaches, you talk to people in the industry, the school that people are more in- intrigued about in terms of what the NCAA will or won't do is the University of Arizona.
0: I'll take it a step further than you. Uh, you'd have to be an idiot or somebody with a bear down tattoo to, not think, <laughs> to think this did not happen. Um, if you want to argue it, it didn't cost 40000 it cost twenty, or like that book was just inflating the number, fine. But the story is too detailed. Like it's this school and it's going to shut down and I work with this guy and this guy told me like, listen, this money's not all for me, but you know, but I got to take care of these other people because, uh, you know, I got to bring other people in to make sure we get this thing right. There's too many, there's too many details in the story. He wasn't just making it up. Like, this is what he did. Um, he was a cheater. Um, it doesn't make him a terrible husband. It doesn't make him a terrible father. It doesn't make him a terrible human, but he was a cheating assistant basketball uh, coach, who has been caught on tape um, uh, m- multiple times um, I- admitting to violations he committed and explaining violations uh, that he says other people he worked with committed, most notably uh, Sean Miller. And so, I don't know what the NCAA is going to do with all of this, but you know, the idea that it didn't happen is is insane to me. Of, of course, it happened. And every once in a while, I get a tweet, and I'm sure it's coming just as soon as this thing publishes, okay. uh, from Arizona fan. <laughs> and and the point that, I don't even know who it is, and it might be multiple people, but I, I've seen it multiple times. The point the person makes is the NCAA came in, and they investigated uh, uh, DeAndre Ayton and Raleigh Arkins and everybody else, and they um, they found that nothing happened. And that's just Improper phrasing. The NCAA cannot ever conclude that nothing happened. They, they, there's no way. to. They, they can conclude that there's no evidence that something happened. Right. Like, but they, they can't ever. Like, there are some Arizona fans. And I, 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 I swear to God on my children's lives, I'm not trying to generalize an entire fan base. I know there are plenty of, of sensible, um, reasonable Arizona fans out there. I'm just talking about the ones that tweet me all the time um like there there there's they insist the incident looked at this and they they concluded nothing happened nobody was ever paid and that is not what the incident did they might have looked at it and investigated to the best of their ability in that time frame and said you know Sean's denying it DeAndre's denying it Raleigh's denying it everybody's denying it and we can't find any evidence that to prove it even though oh boy, we, we're pretty sure this stuff happened. So, you know, so like we're not concluding nothing happened, but we don't have the evidence to prove that it did. And so that is that. But it doesn't mean nothing happened. That the NCAA came in, talked to these people, quote-unquote investigated, and then and then cleared them to play doesn't mean nothing happened. It means, at, at, at most, it means that the NCAA at that time, could not prove what they believed happened, what had been alleged to have happened, actually happened. Does that does that make sense, the difference between those Without two that
1: Without a thing? doubt. Yeah, Parrish, that's, you know, the NCAA is not the court of law. We get all that. But the burden of proof the NCAA puts upon itself is still fairly significant and to me is the roving target with all of these schools and all of these cases that are pending because it's a matter of what they can absolutely prove. Versus probably a, a major philosophical battle that enforcement officers and then the committee on infractions are going to be dealing with is we can't come out of this with an Arizona or with all these other schools and look at our bottom line and say, well, at the end of the day we we meted out, you know a, a three game punishment here. We might have like put like eleven schools on Two years probation apiece. Like, there's no way that's going to satisfy an entire industry and a general public that is that, that knows much more went on here. And what you're getting at is right. By the way, like, I was more diplomatic in my response, but I think that we are mostly on the same page here. Like, I, given the report here and given everything that I saw come to light in the trial, yes, I do think that it is likely that. Uh, Raleigh Alkins's transcript was altered to get him into the University of Arizona. I think that is a very conceivable situation there, but what can the NCAA prove here? And and although it is, it has done a number of investigations and g- gone down so many alleyways with Arizona. There's no completion there yet. If there was, we'd have statements from Arizona. We'd have more coming out. Sean Miller has even recently said that he can't speak about these things because that stuff hasn't wrapped up internally with the university and with the NCAA. So, I don't know. We wait and see. And when Book Richardson gets out of prison, what he does or doesn't say will also be interesting. And if he does or does not deal with any leftover stuff the NCAA might have, also something to track as we head toward the start of the season, a season in which, by the way, Arizona is expected to be good. So where, unlike last season where they were a talking point, they weren't expected to be good. In fact, uh, had one of their worst seasons of the past three decades. Now they're expected to be good again, Still, so they'll be in the news, if for no other reason the fact that they should be a top 25 level team, and they'll still be leftover stuff from this. So um, Arizona fans know that uh, <laughs> their school will be discussed weekly, uh, nationally, for a number of reasons, and this one, obviously, is, is one of many.
0: The last thing I wanted to get to before we get out of here is I wrote a column earlier this week about Kate Cunningham, more specifically the recruitment of Kate Cunningham, and you and I have kind of joked about this on the podcast in the past, like, what is this kid? Like, go ahead, get it over with, commit to Oklahoma State, because obviously back um, end of June, Oklahoma State hired his brother, Canning Cunningham, to be a full-time assistant on on the OSU staff, and while, and I do think it's important and, and only fair to point this out. It's not just like they hired his brother, who was bagging groceries at Kroger. Like his brother has a real basketball background. He played at SMU. He was on staff at Tulane, but he was a, a like assistant video something or other. It was a yeah. It, it was one of those jobs.
1: just an entry level gig when you're trying to break into the business. Yes,
0: of course. And so you know, with. As respectfully as I could possibly say it, you do not go from that job to a you know uh, an entry-level job at a low-tier American Athletic Conference school, or I should say program. It's an incredible school, but low-tier American Athletic Conference college basketball program. You don't go from that to full-time assistant coach at a prominent Big 12 school unless your brother happens to be a five-star guard who's considering. Oklahoma State so he was hired to deliver his brother to Oklahoma State and when he was hired it was just sort of um, assumed I guess but assumed for proper reasons that you know okay well that that's that's done that's a wrap Kate Cunningham will go to Oklahoma State just like Evan Mobley's gonna go to USC because Andy Enfield hired his father as a full-time assistant and yet we sit here on September 12th Kate Cunningham remains uncommitted And the reason I wanted to write this this week is that, you know, the recruiting period that allows uh, college basketball coaches to be on the road, like in schools, uh, visiting uh, prospects. Like it started this week on Monday and John Calipari and Roy Williams, two national championship winning Hall of Fame coaches at Blue Blood programs, obviously Kentucky and North Carolina, uh, both went to Mount Verde Academy down in Florida to go see Kate Cunningham. They are very clearly and seriously continuing to pursue uh Cade Cunningham and what's interesting about this is that I was told back in July that at least one of the schools still seriously considering Kate Cunningham pursuing him was just not going to do it anymore they're just like it's a waste of time like we, we everybody knows the score and Cade has I'm told convinced these coaches I am not a done deal to Oklahoma State. Continue to recruit me. The idea that I'm going there because my brother is there is not true. And for whatever it's worth, the college coaches believe him. For whatever it's worth, John Calipari still thinks he can beat Oklahoma State for Cade Cunningham. Roy Williams still thinks he can beat um, uh, Oklahoma State for Kate Cunningham. And Washington and Florida are also still recruiting him. He has a visit to North Carolina scheduled for later this month then Florida, then Kentucky, then Washington in that order. And if he doesn't go to Oklahoma State, because I talked to multiple recruiting analysts about this, combining it with my own memory of things, he would, far as anybody can tell, be the first player ever to not follow a close relative to a high major program after that high mo- major program hired the close relative um, in a full-time assistance role. And so, listen. I still think, and I wrote this: the smart money has Kate Cunningham ending up at Oklahoma State. But the idea that it ain't a sure thing is super fascinating to
1: me. This is this is the rare case because, Parish, when we go to Peach Jam and past years go to Vegas, and you just you talk to the occasional top ten prospect, and you know they're trying to whittle whittle down a list, but it feels like almost every year there's one top ten prospect that. Um, has a runaway favorite for whatever reason that might be—be it a family member, be it just whatever reason. There's just a runaway pick, and oftentimes, in fact, almost every time, if we're being completely honest, that player will say, "I remember Michael Porter. I remember talking to Michael Porter Jr. about this. Uh, Like, are you going to not go to the school where your dad's employed? And at the time, it was Washington." And he's like, my recruitment's my recruitment's wide open. Uh, still love talking to the coaches. Which, by the way, in many cases, I believe I do believe that the kids like they like getting the chance to talk to future Hall of Famers, current Hall of Famers. Like that's got to be pretty cool because you're never gonna get this again in your life, right? But bottom line is, a lot, these kids usually say, my recruitment's still open. Haven't made any decisions yet. Gonna talk with my family, you know, after uh, after the summer winds down, figure out my business and all that stuff. And you kind of walk away and you're like, all right, that you know, they're saying what they're saying, but really, like this story always. The same way. Like, if it's a situation where you have a top 10 prospect and you look at a crystal ball on 247 sports and there's a hundred, ninety percent or higher, like with rare exception, DeAndre Ayton, coincidentally enough, being one of those. Um, Larnell shouts po- Larnell. Shout to Larnell um, that player is going to go to that school. Well, here you you, you kind of have a little twist on it. So I actually think that it brings a certain level of drama here. And I guess it's not entirely surprising only because you have a, a head coach and Mike Boynton entering his third season as a head coach. He's not a veteran guy, hasn't won an assembly tournament game. Oklahoma State historically is proud as a program. But let's be real, over the past three decades here, it's only had sparing big-picture success, obviously. So within that broad look at it you can understand why it's not just done if kate cunningham's brother had been hired to the staff at kansas i think that this is done Hell, if I I want to say even if Kate Cunningham's brother was hired to the staff at even not even like a blue blood like call it like a Florida or something like that, this is probably also done. Perhaps uh, the scenario surrounding the actual program and the other schools that are involved, obviously huge hitters, is what's causing this to take a little bit of time here. I will note that as we sit here and record this podcast, Kate Cunningham who I think we're going to look up in four years and is going to be like one of the awesome young players in the NBA. I'm not saying he'll be like a top 20 guy, but I think that he will go from college and be awesome, get drafted in the NBA, be a productive rookie, and then by year two or three be like, yeah, this dude is the real deal here. 6'6", strong, can handle. He's like a powerful point guard. I actually think he can play a lot of positions and defend a lot of positions. I think you're going to really like watching him play when he gets to college a year from now. Crystal Ball has 94% still at Oklahoma State. I do think that's where he ends up ultimately, but the fact that he has not made this decision yet—you know, for all we know—and this is complete speculation, GP, like 100% complete, Like for all we know, like he and his brother really know how this is going to go down, but he's like, I want to just enjoy all of this. I want to get a chance to, to go to North Carolina, to go to Kentucky, to see these schools, to be a part of this. That and he's not going to disclose that publicly. Um, and while you know, if that is indeed the case, it's probably not fair to the schools, but to also be fair with a lot of five star prospects this is part of the game like you're hoping that maybe you can flip it but you know that you're not going to you referenced a year ago on this podcast that you went and talked with a bunch of coaches and they had someone else i guess who's familiar with the field and basically said all right coaches how many times did you recruit a player where right. you knew it was you know 80% or better that he wasn't going to go to you and how many times when you thought it was 80% or better that he was that you got him like it's basically how much energy you're going to put in this you usually can see how it ends so coaches get it told and how this uh, this thing usually plays out. I think Cade will end up at Oklahoma State. I'm rooting for that because I like when you have top five players go to places that normally top five players don't go to. I think that's actually better for college basketball. So I'll stick with Oklahoma State. But yes, uh, long answer way too long here, Parrish. I am surprised that we sit here on September 12th and he has not yet uh, declared his allegiance to the Pokes. I would have thought that would have happened by now if we had talked three months ago. But here we are sitting, waiting, and you got Cal and Roy Williams still wishing for it. It'll be interesting to see how long he decides to track this out. The
0: one that's most interesting to me is John Calipari still doing this because, first off, John is is arguably the savviest recruiter in the history of men's basketball, maybe the history of college athletics. If he's not um, deserving of that label, he's like on the list of people who could be in contention um, for that. He doesn't get fooled or go down... Um, the wrong path too often. I, I don't know if I've told this story before on this podcast. I know I've told it on radio before, but back when I was uh, the beat writer um, at the the Memphis newspaper covering John's teams, uh, Brandon Wright, who's a five-star prospect from Nashville. Um, you know, like uh, I, I think I was at Nike all America camp in Indianapolis. And I'm talking to Brandon Wright and keep in mind, I work for the Memphis newspaper. So I'm, I'm asking, you know, Memphis, Uh, related questions and he Brandon Wright goes on this long um, thing with me about how he's a big fan of John Calipari and like he, he you know he and his family come to Memphis often to visit and and that he's absolutely considering the University of Memphis and so I pop back into the gym after that and I sit down with John and I think Derek Kellogg Tony Barbie his staff and I said, hey, listen, and obviously uh, coaches aren't allowed to discuss prospects, so um, this conversation may or may not have happened, but uh, it happened. I said, hey, John, are you, are, are you uh, recruiting Brandon Wright? He's like, no. I said, why are you not recruiting Brandon Wright? I said, I just talked to him. He said, like, big fan of you, like, loves city of Memphis, like he's from the state of Tennessee. He's like, I can't get Brandon Wright at the University of Memphis. He goes, that, that's a private school kid, grew up in the suburbs, two-parent home. That ain't who we recruit at the University of Memphis. He just knew it does not matter what Brandon Wright says that I'm not wasting a minute recruiting Brandon Wright because that kid's going to Duke or North Carolina or Kentucky. He ain't coming to the university of Memphis. And he said it with all due respect to the university of Memphis, but like Memphis is a, um, it's a, it's a, uh, urban university, you know, like they, they, they recruited a very certain type of student athlete when John was there. You know, it was, um, uh, Tyreek Evans and Derrick Rose, as opposed to, to Brandon Wright. And so, my point with that story is that even though a five star in state prospect was saying publicly, I am absolutely considering the University of Memphis, John Calipari knew they, we're, we're not getting that done. It's not worth our time. And yet, he's recruiting Kate Cunningham. Yeah. Like, he does, he, he thinks it's worth his time. And it's coming just a year after. And I feel like he had to continue this because. He was a lock to get James Wiseman until Penny Hardaway was hired. But it comes just a year after they got burned by not recognizing the obvious, which is Memphis just hired his high school coach. Like, Memphis is going to get James Wiseman. They were like, no, we were in there deep already. We've been recruiting him for two years. We were going to get him until this happened. We're going to keep trying to get him. But they did get burned. And for John to travel a similar path this year suggests to me that they really do think they've got a shot. And it suggests to me that North Carolina really does believe it has a shot. Again, um, th- these programs were on the verge of just get, like pulling out. My, my understanding is Duke actually did just say, we're done with it. We're not going to recruit Kate Cunningham anymore. It's not worth the time. He's going to Oklahoma State. They just hired his brother. But North Carolina, uh, K- uh, Kentucky, and I assume Florida and, and Washington have been convinced by the young man that his recruitment is actually open. And I do think it's worth noting our friend Evan Daniels, who is the uh, director of basketball recruiting for 24-7 Sports. No pick. Uh, do what?
1: He has no pick yet, right? No. He had a pick. Oh, he changed it.
0: He went from Oklahoma State to undecided. Oh,
1: okay. There we go. Definitely, Evan, yeah. uh, the
0: Evan seems to think this recruitment is actually up in the air, and he's written something similar um um you know recently the last thing i would say is think about the family dynamic here cuz if you're Cannon cunningham again you were a, 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 a you know on staff in an administrative role at Tulane you know 6 months ago now you're an assistant coach full-time assistant on the road recruiter at a big 12 school like that's a life-changing career opportunity and if you don't get this done who knows where your career goes after this i don't know how mike boynton would handle it but i know how some coaches would handle it be like yo if you can't get your brother like then that that says all i need to know about your effectiveness uh as a as a high level recruiter like this could really be a it's not just what's best for Cade cunningham although i'm certain he's looking at it from that perspective Um, imagine the pressure you must be under if you're 17 18 years old and you don't really want to go to Oklahoma State instead of Kentucky or North Carolina. If not for your brother's presence on staff, you wouldn't even be considering Oklahoma State above Kentucky and North Carolina. But you also know if you don't go to Oklahoma State under these circumstances, it could cost your brother the career he would otherwise have. That's a tough spot, man.
1: It is a tough spot. My last thing on this is this. The fact that this is still up in the air also speaks to Cunningham's impact in his one-and-done season in college. Uh, You mentioned Wiseman. Wiseman's probably going to be really good at Memphis Parish, but if you told me at the end of the season James Wiseman was not a first, second, or third team All-American, it's not that hard for me to see that kind of scenario playing out. With Cunningham, his size, his smarts, I've been told his leadership ability and his maturity is completely off the charts. Great IQ, great passer, great shooter, big body. He is the kind of player. He's a different kind of five-star prospect. You can often get a five-star top five prospect who you think will be awesome and very well could be, and then you know what? They're more of a pro guy. Uh, To me, Cade Cunningham is the guy that if he goes to Kentucky or Carolina, national championship expectations if you go to oklahoma state you go from being a team that should make the NCAA tournament to no minimally we should be a second weekend team he is that important of a player he just is ready made for the college game now i think he could start tomorrow in college and be a top 20 type player in the NCAA. So I think that also speaks to why you've got Calipari, Roy Williams, Florida, Washington. They're still chasing because they have not only a glimmer of hope, but if you actually manage somehow to get him, even for Florida, like Florida, which will be a really good team this year, like you go to final four expectations with a player like him, he is that good. He is more player than he is prospect even though he's kind of both sometimes you get the reverse when you get a, a really talented five-star kind of guy who truthfully though projects to be better when he gets to the nba as opposed to being in college
0: To your point about wiseman i, I think it's more likely he's the number one pick in the draft than he is a first team all-american yes but but we'll discuss that another day <laughs> shouts to Devin downey shouts to chester south carolina shouts to terry mf and teagle he's a legend shouts to larnell shouts to raleigh hawkins cousin and his old high school coach and whoever allegedly changed his transcripts. And remember, uh, you can subscribe to the Iron College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast. Very easy to do. Take seconds while you're there. Please rate it favorably. Five stars. Leave a nice comment. I always enjoy reading them. So you do that, and then we will talk to you again uh, next week. Till then, take care.